You are about to listen to Yom Kippur, Finding Direction in Life, Part 3 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. All of the Shmuzin, as well as many series that deal with real-life issues, are available on the theshmooz.com or on the Shmooz app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashem, 718-906-6461. One of the greatest Tanoim who lived, and certainly one of the most famous, was Nochem Ish Gamzu. Whenever the Klayusah were in trouble, he was the one who was asked to represent the Klayusah. Chazal asked him to go to Rome when they needed an emissary, because he was, as the Gemara says, Melumad Benisim. He was accustomed to miracles. It was a regular pattern of events for this man to have various miracles and various various astounding events happen. And obviously he was a very, very great man. The expression Nochem Ish Gamzu was not actually his name. His name was bought, it was begotten to him because of his ex- constant expression Gamzu Latova. That was the man, that was the essence of the man. And he lived for many years <coughs> as a great Tana a very well-known Tana. And the Gemara that we have in front of us in Tainus Dav Aleph deals with his situation at the end of his days. The Gemara says, They say about Nochem Ishgamzu, He was blind in both eyes, lame in both of his hands, and his two legs were crushed, quadriplegic, blind, and his entire body was filled with sores. His bed was in a very rickety, shaky house. That was his poor house. The bed, the legs of the bed were actually in buckets of water. So that the nemolim, so that the ants shouldn't crawl up. Rashi explains that this was the only way he couldn't take off if any gnats or ants or something crawled on his bed. He couldn't remove them because he had no hands. So they put his bed posts in cans of water. One time, one day, his bed was in this very rickety house and it looked like the house itself was going to collapse. His Talmidim wanted to take out his bed, remove him, take him out of danger, and afterwards take out the Kalim. He said, B'nai, my children, first take out the Kalim, and afterwards take out my bed, because it's guaranteed to you, as long as I am in the house, the house will not fall. Pinuas the kalim. In fact, his students removed the kalim. Viachakach pinuas mitoso, and then they took out his bed. Vinofal abayis. As soon as they took his bed out, the house fell. Amrulo tamidov. His tamidim said, "Rebbe, v'chemiachashetzadik gomerata." Since you are obviously a tzadik gomer, and the mashal explains, how did they know he was a tzadik gomer? Because you're not allowed to be somech alanes. You're not allowed to rely on a miracle, and yet here he was clearly saying, you're guaranteed, as long as my body is in this house, nothing bad will happen. And the Mashal explains, because he knew that he was in fact a tzaddik gomer, and it wasn't gaiva, 
wasn't arrogant. He knew who he was. And this was the man. So his Talmidim, upon witnessing this, said to him, after all, if you're Tzadik Gomer, Lama al why are you suffering so? Why has this become your lot? Amalahim, he said to him, Bini, my children, Anigaramti la'atzmi, I called it upon myself. Shabam Acha Sayyisim Halach Biderach, one time I was going on the road, Labeishami, to my in-law's house, Vayaimi Mosi Sholosh Chamorim, I had with me three donkeys laden. Echad Shamachal, one of food, Vechad Shamishta, one of drink, Vechad Shamini Megadim, one of delicacies. Ba'ani Achad, Va'amadli Biderach, along came an Ani, a poor man, and stopped me in the road. Vamali Rebbe, Parnasani said, Rebbe, feed me. Amarti Lohamtain, wait, I said. Wait, wait till I get off the donkey. I did not get off the donkey. Before this poor man died. I went and fell on his face, on the dead man's face. My eyes that did not have mercy on your eyes, you some who should be blinded. My hands that did not have Rachmanis on your hands, Yigadmu should become lame. My legs that didn't have mercy on your legs should be crushed. I didn't become appeased. I didn't become cooled down on Shamarti until I said my entire body should be filled with sores. Amrulo. His Talmidim, when seeing this and now understanding why, he was in the state. Oh, woe to us that we have to see you this way. And listen to his answer. Amr lahem, he said back to them, Oili, woe to me, if you didn't see me this way. A very troubling Gemara. Because not only are we dealing with a tzaddik gomer, who has a very, very rough lot in life, we're dealing with an answer that doesn't seem to begin to address the question. The question is, if you're such a tzaddik, if you're such a righteous, holy man, why are you suffering so? So the answer is, because it was a poor man, and I said, wait. And in the time that I said, wait, he died, and therefore... I said these, my hands that didn't have mercy, my eyes that didn't have mercy. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. First of all, how does he know? He's riding on a donkey, a poor man stops him. So he says, Hamtain, wait, let me get off the donkey and I'll feed you. What? How does he know that the poor man is so, so destitute, so broken that he's going to die of hunger? It's very hard to see a flaw here. It's very hard to see a mistake. <clears throat> and yet it's clear from Nochemish Gamzu's definition, that the reason why he suffered so was because of that event. And this evening I'd like to deal with this question. What's pshat in this Gemara? But to do that, we're going to need a little background. And let me begin with, a, with an observation. In just a few short days, it's going to be Yom Kippur. And I think for most of us, a very serious day, a day that we've prepared for, a day that we spent a lot of time getting ready for. And yet I suspect that there's going to be a certain point during the day, most likely during the Alchets, when you're going to look at the long list of Alchets, and you're going to say, what? What? 
what's this got to do with me? Slow down. Slow down. This is not me. Listen, I'm not saying I'm a tzaddik at a generation, but this long litany of averas and sins, and heart, it just doesn't seem to apply. And yet, Chazal wrote the words of the Achet, not just for us, but for generations far greater than us. And I think it's a little bit of a kasha. How is it that we surely do not hold ourselves to be greater than people of previous generations? Yet it sure does seem that many, many of the Alchites, if not most, certainly the, the Musak, the whole concept, doesn't apply to us. And I think the answer to that has a lot to do with our mental state, how we judge ourselves. I think if you'd ask the average guy, let's assume for a minute, Nachman shouldn't happen. Let's say today was your last day. It's over. It's been nice. It's been good, this thing called life. But now it's over. And now you're brought in front of the Kisei Adin, your judge on your life. I think if you'd ask the average person, what's your perception? What do you think it's going to be like? Well, too bad. Listen, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I learn, I daven, you know, keep Shabbos, kosher, you know. All right, listen, I'm not saying, you know, I'm a total tzaddik gomer, I'm not a nochemish gamzu, but I'll do all right. I'm not, I'm not that afraid. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's a pretty common perception, a pretty common understanding that I'll do all right. Don't worry about it. I'm not particularly scared about Yom Adin because, because I'm okay. I want you to imagine for a minute the following. A Choshev ben Torah, learned many years in yeshiva, finished learning yeshiva, went to work, gets up five o'clock in the morning, learns the Dafa Yomi, goes to the practical halachas here, and, and he's a solid balabas, he's Mavar Sedra, he does what he's supposed to, and he starts doing well in business. Business starts succeeding, and he starts making money, starts making a lot of money, but it doesn't ruin him. Fakir, he starts giving sedaka. he's still up 5 o'clock, he's davening properly, he's a mensch, and he's learning, and he's bringing up his children, and he's doing great. A model balabas. His business grows and expands, he starts being honored, and doesn't ruin him. Lo and behold, as life has its ways, the business suddenly takes a nosedive crashes, and he's bankrupt. Bankrupt. Destroyed. Doesn't know how he's going to pay his mortgage. Doesn't know how he's going to come up with the $50,000 that he promised to the yeshiva because they're honoring him next month. Doesn't know how he's going to pay his kids' tuition. And he's a sabrach and a minch. He just finally recognizes the depth of his problems. And it's Shabbos. And he just can't take it. He runs out at Musaf, and he's broken down, crying. He pulls out a cigarette, lights it, and begins smoking. He's just so broken. Understandable. Can't fault the man. It's a rough, rough situation. Yet, we all know, from the time we're little kids, the halacha is that he's chayev skila. He has lost his lease on life. 
He has done something that's so egregious, that's so evil, that the Torah says this man has to be removed from the planet. If there were a Bezdin, if there were Adam and a Bezdin, he would get Skila. They take him to a second story high cliff, throw him off, and if he was still alive, they throw stone on, stones on him because what he did was so evil. Now, gentlemen, does that make sense? He's a good guy. And not only is he a good guy, he had a very rough situation. Can you tell me the man's mamish chayev misa for one cigarette, one time? And especially, let's keep in mind, the Torah is called Rachmana, from the word Hashem being the Baal HaRachamim. The Torah is written with total, complete mercy, with total, complete loving kindness. And if you can imagine the most merciful human being in the world, then multiply that by 10,000, 10,000, you will not begin to imagine the mercy that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has on any living creature. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu wrote the Torah with Rachamim, created the world with Rachamim. And yet, it is an open, mufurish halacha that no one would argue about that that man at that point is fit to die. And I think that's a question that bears being asked. What's pshat? It sure does not seem that the punishment of skila fits the crime of a smoking a cigarette. And I think if you think about this question, you'll find it's profound because it's all over. We now, in the Kolobokar in Muncie, we now learn makas. The entire Masechet explains what you do to get malchus, to get whipped. You know what that means? The Mishnah explains very clearly. They put you in a public area. All of your friends or acquaintances gather to watch the scene. They lean you over without your shirt. They tie your hands together and they whip you. And the Mishnah describes the whip. And the Mishnah describes the fact that there's a doctor on hand to make sure that you don't die. What terrible act... What terrible crime does it take to get Malchus? Basically, violating any Losasayat Torah. As a matter of fact, if not for a technicality, Lashon Hara would be Chayev Malchus. No, it's a technicality. It's a lav de lesbomais. It doesn't have an action. It's just a debur. So, at the end of the day, you're not going to get Malchus. But any time a Jewish person speaks one time, not ten times in a day, not a hundred times, not between Mincha Marab and then after Shachas, one time, effectively that act is Chayim Makas. So you hear the kasha? The kasha is that it sure does not seem that the punishment fits the crime. After all, come on, Lashon Hara, I'm not saying it's a mitzvah, but like, let's not get carried away, making Mamish Chayim Makas, are you kidding me? And yet... <laughs> That's the halacha. And we all know it. And the question is, what's pshat? And I think the pshat is to be found in a very, very unusual place. The next time you go to be Menachem Oval, and imagine it's an amana, a young widow, with seven children, and you walk in there and you see her and your heart wants to break. Left alone in the world, with seven hungry mouths to feed, 
without emotional support, without financial support, stranded, left alone. And when you sit down to be Menachem Ovel, think the following thought. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not want this to happen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not want this to be in the world. And my friends, that's not apikarsis. Because if you know, Kodim Lachet, before Odom Arishon did the first Chet, there was no concept called Misa. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, there was not supposed to be an entity called death in the world. There was supposed to be creation, man, man having children, children having children, generation after generation, without death. Death was an entity that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not want. Death came about because Odom Arishon was Makalkel the Bria. Odom Arishon ruined the Bria. Ruined creation. When he ate from the Eitz Adas, what he did was destroy the master plan. And the only way, if it could be, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu could keep the same Surah, the approximately the same world in some fashion, was to change it radically. And there had to be an entity called death brought into the world, and only because of Adam Arishan's one act. And now I think we begin to open our ears a little and hear what's going on. You see, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Adam, He said to Adam, I've created a world. Pay careful attention that you don't destroy my world. You see, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, he invested a tremendous amount of wisdom in every facet of creation. Everything was created to be a perfect world. But that world was created for the purpose of Odom, man having Bahira, for man to be a partner in the completion of the world. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Odom with Bahira, if it could be, Hashem had a problem. You know what the problem is? Bahira, by definition, means free will. He may choose correctly, and he may choose incorrectly. And if in fact he chooses incorrectly, the problem is the world itself is a partnership. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, he gave the keys to Adam Marisha, and he said, here's my world. You will be a partner with me in its creation, in its formation, in its completion. Here are the keys. Pay careful attention that you don't destroy my world. And in fact... That's what Adam Arishon did. He destroyed the world. One man, one act, and now some 5,765 years later, the ramifications are echoing through history. And gentlemen, the point is, it's not that we don't understand what an Avera is. It's not that we don't understand what a sin means. We don't have a clue to what a human being is. We don't have a clue to human greatness. We're clueless to what a single act of human being can do because we don't understand how much HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave to the human, how much Hashem expects from us. And hence we see things in the Torah and they seem foreign. How could it be? A little man does one little thing and you're getting all bent out of shape over it. He's not a little man. And it's not an insignificant act. Because when man acts, that is a mighty, powerful, and significant thing. When all the Mauritian acts, he destroys the world. When I, as a little human being that I am, when I act, has ramifications well, well beyond anything 
that I probably can understand. And every once in a while, it's Gedai to open our eyes and see the punishments in the Torah, not to get scared, I'm going to tremble, but to understand the gravity, the importance of a human act, to understand the importance of a human being. If the Torah says, yes, this is the punishment, you know what that means? That means this act is so egregious, so serious. You know why? Because a human is so important. A human is so significant. What he does matters so much. Haraya, or the Mauritian can do one act. That act can bring a different world. And as you know, Rabbi Harris mentioned this last week in a beautiful, beautiful point. When the Klai are in trouble, what do we daven? We blow the shofar, shofar shall ayel, so that Hashem should remember the akeda. The akeda was 3,800 years ago. One man in the privacy of his own Dalai Amos. There was no one else there. He wasn't a world leader. He wasn't a man who brought thousands of people to witness his event. It was a private event. He took Yitzhak on the Akeda. That one event done Bishlemus is so powerful that it echoes out now some 3,800 years later. And we are the benefact- beneficiaries of it and we enjoy its benefits. My friends, I've heard it said in the name of the Bali Musa that every human being has an Akedah sometime in their life. There's some Akedah, there's some Nisayan that is the pivotal point, the changing point, that is the definition of who they will be. And I dare say, whilst it's obvious that none of us are Avram Avinu, but we each are a world unto ourselves. And not only are we a world unto ourselves, but Hashem, we either do have children, will have children, Hashem, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And there's no question that every Jew not only has their akeda, but every Jew has that opportunity to become a chevtza of Kedusha, a holy person that his descendants should merit various, various good because of him. And even that they should daven in the schus of my great-grandfather, whoever that may be, namely me. Just like I am a great-grandson of someone I hope who is a good, holy Jew, I hope to be one day a grandfather, a great-grandfather, someday maybe even beyond that. And my world, little me, contains people, the people who I shape, the people who I mold, my children, the next generations, And if a Jew lives his life properly, then many, many generations later are benefiting from him. I don't think we could begin to understand the gravity of an act, one act of human being. But, after all said and done, I don't think we've answered the question yet. The question that we asked was, here is Nochem Ishgamzu, the Tzadik Gomer, a very, very small, slight error that's almost imperceptible. Difficult to understand what a schait was. All he did was hamtain, wait. Let me get off the chamor and feed you. He didn't say no. He didn't say, you dirty beggar, I don't want to forget it. He felt rachmanis, but not enough. Not quickly enough. He didn't move with alacrity. He didn't move with zrizis. So you're telling me that after all the understanding of a ma'isa, that's what he's high of this type of punishment for? Says the Marsha, no. You are correct. The question is good, and it is not 
the punishment does not fit the crime. As a matter of fact, says the Marshal, if you read very carefully, he didn't say, this is my ownish. He didn't say, Hashem is punishing me for my lack of zrizus. You know what he said? He said the words, Ani garamti laatzmi. I caused it upon myself. Meaning, when I got down off that chamor and saw the man died, I said, let my eyes be blinded. I said, let my hands be crushed. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't say them. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was not meeting that out as the punishment for my crime, because that was not the punishment for the, my, that crime. But says the Marsha, you know what was happening here? Here was a man who understood total, complete shlemus. He understood perfection. And there was a slight slight imperfection in his act, a lack of Rachmanus, a lack of mercy, and he felt that he wanted to cleanse that from him, to get it off his soul, and he was willing to live in this condition because he valued complete, utter perfection and recognized something. What he recognized was that any slight blemish is noticeable. When you have a beautiful tie-on, not this one, all right. But if you have a nice tie-on and you get a stain on it, it's a noticeable blemish. Gentlemen, there will come a day when you and I will leave this earth. The I whom speaking to you now will separate, leave this body. And for most people, that's not scary because it means like going to sleep. Listen, you go to sleep at night and nothing bothers you. You broke your arm during the day, you're in terrible pain, you took aspirin, you took Advil, nothing, nothing stopped the pain until you go to sleep at night. Ah, geshmak, I'm sleeping and I don't feel pain. Most people think of dying like going to sleep. That's geshmak. I do whatever I want in this world. I got in trouble, I did do, do good, I didn't do What's the difference? When I'm dead, I'm asleep. And if, by the way, if you don't believe me, go to the base of Kvaros. Go to a cemetery and you'll see all over at the footstep, at the footstone, at the headstone, the words, at rest. Right? At rest. At rest. Rest in peace. At rest. He's at rest. Ah! Harvey was a good man, but now he lies there at rest. Meaning sleeping. Ah! Beautiful. Nothing to worry about. Chazal tell us that it's a little different than that. A little different. The very same I who am speaking to you now will separate and the very same eye will feel with utter, complete feelings. Everything I feel now. The same eye who speak to you right now, if you yell at me and embarrass me, I will feel pain. Or if you praise me, I will feel joy. The same eye will leave this body and in that state, I will feel and know with all of the emotions that I feel now. Same eye. Not any different. But one difference and that difference is a utter, complete, different understanding of the purpose of life. A total, complete, different understanding of the value of any mitzvah. And a totally different understanding of what we're here for. To grow, to accomplish, and an understanding that any action that I do leaves an indelible imprint forever on me. That I forever will carry right there, on me, on the essence of me, exactly who I am. 
And my friends, it's a scary thought. I may date myself with this, but uh, for you computer junkies who were around in the, in the mid-80s, you'll know that the old word, all-time word processes are very different than now. In the olden days, you used to have, uh, you used to type onto your mono colors, right? The mono, mono screens, a green screen, you had a little flashing thing. If you wanted to tell the printer to print a particular line in bold, you would put an open bracket, a B, a closed bracket, right? And then the printer, you'd see that on your screen, and the printer would read the B and bold a line. If you wanted to underline something, what would you do? You'd put an open bracket, the U, the closed bracket, and then again, that's what you see on your screen. The printer would know to underline it. Somewhere, maybe 15 years ago, the technology evolved in a new Matthias came about called WYSIWYG. Right? WYSIWYG. WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get. So now if you open up Microsoft Word and you click on the B, the letter itself on the screen is bolded. If you under, click on the U, the letter, the, the line itself is underlined. What you see is what you get. My friends, I think that is a very apt muscle for what it's like when we leave this earth. What you see is what you get. Exactly as I am now is how I will be for eternity. Now, right now, you can't see me. I'm hidden within this heavy cloak of physicality. I could be thinking one thing and saying another. I could be thinking all the while of selling you a very expensive life insurance policy, but complimenting you all the time about everything else under the sun. You can't read my inner thoughts. You can only read my actions, my words. I can hide from you. But that's very different when we leave this earth. You see, I... Same I I'm speaking to now will be stripped of this heavy cloak of physicality. I will leave this goof and you will see me for exactly who I am. As I think, as I feel, with all of my aspirations, with all of my drives, maybe my dreams, maybe my wishes. My friends, I'll share something with you. To me personally, that is the most frightening thought that I think a human being can have. Could you imagine the the shock? That's you, Rabbi Schaefer. You? I thought you were. I thought you were a nice guy. I thought. You were, but could you imagine what it's like? I almost. I give you a muscle. I teach high school maybe a little too much, but uh, <clears throat> could you imagine if there was a little microphone in the brain? As in, uh, think a little louder. I got, think a little. I can't. But could you imagine if you walked with a guy day, during the day and there was a microphone speaking out his thoughts? And imagine for a minute it was a microphone speaking out your thoughts. So I'm sure many thoughts we'd be proud of. Listen, I'm generous and I was helpful and I'm a, trying to be a Balchesed. And there are many thoughts that I think would be very, very, oh, shut the mic off. <laughs> let's go off the air, guys. Shut this mic off the record. Like, let's not hear this one, you, you know. But think about it. When I leave this earth, there's no shutting off the mic. There's no off the record. You will see me peer into the essence of me and see me for exactly who I am. No hiding, no changing, no transformation. Who I am, right there, nicker, gully, a coal. And every action written on me. Not some angel bringing the big book of deeds. Let us review your entire life. Right there in indelible ink written on me is who I am. 
what I made myself into. Every Maisa Tov shapes me and molds me. Every Maisa Ra damages me. Every good thought makes me into a holier, better person. And every negative thought damages me. If a human being were ever able to really, really dehair that, do you know how different our life would be? I'm going to wear that, wear that for the rest of eternity. I'm going to wear that sin. I'm going to wear that on my chest. A man like Nochum Ishgamzu understood. And he was a sterling white coat. The man was cloaked in greatness. The man was Kaddush. And the man understood that on that beautiful, beautiful white cloak, there was one stain. Almost imperceptible, but there. And that stain would be present for eternity. Forever. Forever and ever and ever. He'd be wearing a beautiful, long, white, perfect coat with one stain on it. And he said the words, I caused it upon myself because it was worth it. And listen to the final conversation. Oilan, who is telling him, said, Oy, we have to see you like this. What does he say back? No. Oili imlorosini. Oi to me if you didn't see me. Rahmanalasan, if I didn't get rid of that stain, I would have had it forever and it's worth it. It is worth it for me to bear this pain. Blind, cripple. Lying in that bed, it's worth it. Because that man understood the value of an action. That man understood what self-perfection is all about. That man understood the greatness of human. And I think it's a thought that's very, very far from our perception. We live in a dummied down, slipping down the slippery slope of amorality in Western society that's decadent beyond decadent, where we no longer even have a perception of greatness. We owe a lot to this country. We owe an awful lot to this country. But at the same time, there is such a lack of godless. There is such a lack of a man standing up and shaping himself, holding himself accountable, making himself into a great human being. That concept does not exist. Give in. Do what you want, as you want, when you want. What's the difference? Come on. Have a good time. Just give in. Be a wimp. And you hear it all day long in the media, the radio, the billboards. Come on. You're a slum, baby. Just just be a slum rat like me. We're all just slumming it. And I hate to use that strong expression, but gentlemen, when you study godless, when you study great men, and you see what a godl is, and you see what passes now for a human being, it's shocking. This past Tishabov, I became a little bit of a closet chassid. Just a little bit. I read, late in the day, and I began reading the book, The Kloisenberger Rebbe, The Warriors. And I cannot describe what I felt when I was reading this book. The book describes the Kloisenberger Rebbe living through the Holocaust, through concentration camps, through work camps, And I cannot describe the sense of humility that I felt during this book. Because every description of the man described a giant of spirit. A man who so 
towered over humanity that I felt so awed and so tiny. And it's very difficult for me to share. It's worth reading the book. It's very difficult for me to share with you even an eye glimpse. But I'll give you just a few examples. From the time he entered the camps, he accepted upon himself not to eat trafe food. Now, if you've seen the pictures of concentration camp inmates, you understand quickly that the diet was not exactly five-star Hilton. The typical diet in a concentration camp consisted of effectively one piece of bread and a watery cup of soup per day, per inmate, period. That was it. If he was able to obtain kosher food, he ate it, and if not, he didn't. But the Kiddush is that you had people there who were groveling, who were literally killing for a slice of bread. And the description of the man as a prince, a prince amongst men. He made up Pesach, that he wasn't going to eat chametz. Even the one slice of bread he wasn't going to eat. But even though there were other Jews who did that, he was not even going to be nene from chametz. Typically, if you were a great, great man of spirit and somehow you felt the strength not to eat chametz on Pesach, and by the way, it wasn't so pashit, because nefesh. But if you felt that strength and you didn't, what you did was you sold your bread for some potato, maybe a sugar beet. He would not be nena from chametz. And almost for seven days, the first seven days of Pesach, he basically ate nothing until someone finally gave him a potato without charging him a piece of bread. And even more shockingly, in the last nine months of his being in the camps, he was in a labor camp. A labor camp called Moldov. In that camp, it wasn't just that food was scarce, rainwater, water was almost non-existent. If it rained, it froze, and the Nazis deliberately would not give them water. Right outside the barbed wire fence, the electrified barbed wire fence, was a stream. And every day he watched that stream. People who were in the camps described that not only did he eat kosher, not only wouldn't he eat chametz, many a day he would not eat at all because he could not find water to wash his hands with. The man was a giant, a man of principle, and he wouldn't budge. You can try, you can attempt, you will not get me to budge off my principles. A man was a sterling, powerful, powerful mensch. And what they describe, what people describe him, was a prince amongst men. And everyone was in awe of him. Those nine months, he looked at that stream of water, and he davened every day. And you have to hear what his tefillah was. He davened every day, Hashem, let me live. Let me live so that I can make a shahakol properly. Not let me live, give me water. Not destroyed by hunger. By the way, if you know what the Gemara says, it is worse to die by hunger than it is to die by the sword because hunger debases, hunger destroys. The man stood strong. And in fact, when he was freed, those who were there described that he went to that stream and he made a shackle that made the Shemayim Va'oritz tremble. He said himself that in his life, never before and never after did he ever say a bracha like that. But that's the man's tefillah.
Eli Wiesel, in the book Night, also describes hunger with a very different outcome. He describes that there were Jews who were in a concentration camp and they were taken. The Nazis knew it was over, but they took them out on a train to get them out. Maybe they could somehow kill them along the way. And the Nazis left this train full of Jews because they realized that they were being attacked and they ran. And along came some other Germans and looked in and saw, oh, we got Jews in there. They decided to have a little sport. They took a piece of bread and threw it in, knowing that there were 80 men, one piece of bread, knowing the fights that would break out. And it became a sport. They threw in a piece of bread and watched them fight. And Eli Wiesel describes that he was in the train when a man grabbed a piece of bread and he looked this way, he looked that way, he put it under his shirt and he realized he got away and no one else saw it. But he, got, he was seen. And suddenly another man pounces on him and starts beating him. And the man who has the bread looks up and goes, Chaim, Chaim, stop it, stop it, Chaim. But Chaim didn't stop it. The man said, Chaim, you're punching your father. You're punching your father. And Eli Wiesel describes that the son killed the father for the piece of bread. And then as the son was about to eat the piece of bread, he himself was killed. And that is what hunger does to a man. And here you have a description of a man who marshaled the energy, stood up to his full height and said, No, I am the master of my ship. You will not break me. And he stood like a prince amongst men. And when you see the godless, when you see the greatness, you understand perfection. What it means to rise above life. My friends, it is a very, very difficult task to understand what a Jew is capable of. And the reason why it's so difficult for us to understand is because the world we live in denies it. They scream out with a very powerful, loud voice, Be a no one just like me. Give in. Resist. What's resist? Just come on. Just have a good time. Party. Slum it. And it becomes so much a part of us that we forget what godless or greatness is all about. Rav David Lipschitz was a Rosh Hashiva in YU. He was, a, was not a very tall man at all. He used to walk from his apartment to the base medrash in effectively Spanish Harlem. And the Puerto Ricans would get off the sidewalk. The rabbi, the rabbi is coming. Because when a person lives up to what he's capable of, He is a giant of a man, notwithstanding his physical size, but he's a guddle, he's a mensch, a person who is respected. The Jewish nation were created to be an amnovon v'chacham, a wise and intelligent great nation. A guy is supposed to look at a Jew and go, wow, wow, that's a mensch. If you would like to know whether we have anything to do tshuva about Anyam Kippur, ask yourself one simple question. The goyim amongst two I travel, when they look at me, what do they see?
Are they in awe? Do they hold me in great respect as a man of my word? As a man of ehrlichkeit, of honesty? As a man of spirituality? As a man who's different, above, way, way above the common man? Or did he look at me, hey Joe, hey, one of the guys, yeah, all right, right. My friends, that's not a small question. It's not a small question at all. You see, there's nothing wrong with being an imperfect 13-year-old. Matter of fact, it's what a 13-year-old should be. Kodesh Baruch gave us, hopefully, 70 years of life to perfect ourselves. And Hashem created us intentionally imperfect, giving us the opportunity to accomplish, to grow, to change ourselves, to make ourselves into a different sort of person. And there's nothing wrong with being an imperfect 13-year-old. And I suspect, not even that horrific, if you're an imperfect 23-year-old. Perhaps when you're 33, and 43, and 53, and 63, and you're still imperfect. I hate to quote from non-Chazal sources, but there's an old Chinese proverb, I didn't read this in the Chinese, but I've been told... There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if we don't change our direction, we're going to end up where we're headed. And gentlemen, think about that. That's something to think about, because how many people can honestly say they're now where they want to be? How many people can really say, I am exactly where I want to be, but not just that, I'm headed right towards that point? my friends, if you do say that, you don't have a clue what you're capable of. Because when you hear a description of a man who rises to such heights, and you read about Gedolim, and you know that I, like them, have been put on this planet with all the capacities, all of the strengths to grow, to accomplish, and have I done that? Am I so markedly different this year than the year before? This decade than the decade before? Am I really an issue who can say in a chacham v'novon, a wise, well-worked-out, kindly, magnanimous, generous person? I once had this chus to hear of Schwab speak on Yom Kippur, and he said, Yom Kippur is about tshuva, that's true, but there's another element about Yom Kippur that has nothing to do with tshuva. Yom Kippur is a day of introspection. It's a day for a Jew to look at himself and ask one question. Am I the man I want to be? Am I the man I dreamt about being? And it's a day when a Jew should stand there in shul and take stock of himself. And ask himself those very, very difficult penetrating questions of am I the man that I could be? Am I really all that I can be? Hopefully, and certainly if a person has an understanding of his capacity and his potential, the answer is no. And Yom Kippur is a day when a Jew should be taking stock and then making significant decisions to change. 
significant decisions that who I am is okay for now, but it sure ain't the way I want to leave this planet. It's sure not the man I intend to be. It's sure not the man I dreamt about being. And it's a day that a Jew should take stock and make a plan to change. To change what? A Jew has their own parcel, their own peckle, their own bag. And each Jew has to know where they're holding and make those difficult decisions to change. I heard Rabbi Foyer tell over, he was a son-in-law of Rav Gifter. When Rav Gifter was 13 years old, when he was 13 years old, there was a mirror in his room. In his dorm room in yeshiva was a mirror, very much the same as a typical mirror you'd see in a 13-year-old's dorm room, except one difference. The mirror had pictures around it. Pictures of Gdolim. Pictures of great, great men. And apparently, Rav Gifter would go over to that mirror because at the very bottom of the mirror were written the words, Why not you? You hear? He would go over to that mirror, look at himself, and look at those gadolim and say the words, Why not you? Why can't I become a great man? What am I? Chop liver? They're great and I'm not? They became and I can't? What am I paralyzed? Am I handicapped? Am I incapable of growing? But unfortunately, most people don't begin to live up to their potential primarily because they don't have a clue to their potential. They don't dream. They stop dreaming. They stop setting goals. They stop setting standards. So whatever, I'm okay. Listen, I'm, you know, right. I'm no worse than last year, right? Listen, you know, I'm no, I didn't do worse this year than last year. I'm just, I'm okay. And they come into Yom Kippur and they look at the Al-Khaitz and they say, yeah, I don't know, what's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with me is a very good question if you don't have real goals and aspirations, if you're not holding yourself, if you're not dreaming about being a godol, if you're not dreaming about being a great man. And my friends, don't make a mistake. A godol does not only mean a man who learns three Siddharma a day in yeshiva. A godol means a person of greatness. In honesty, in musr, in midos, in davening, in being a kindly, good bentorah. And I think it's a tremendous lesson to learn from a Nochem Ishgamzu. Nochem Ishgamzu understood perfection, and he was willing to suffer. He was willing to suffer being paralyzed, being blinded for one essence, one iota of perfection because he understood what it meant. And that's an important lesson to us. You know why? Because if you come to Yom Kippur and you come to that moment and you say, it's true, I've been slumming it. I really can do much more. I really can grow. There's no reason why I can't improve dramatically. Then along is going to come that heavy voice of, yeah, but it's so hard. It means changing habits. And it means really pushing myself. And I'm pretty comfortable where I am. And it's at that point when you have to say to yourself, is that what I was put on this planet for? Is that all I can be? Is that all I'm capable of? Super Bowl Sunday, 2003 the 37th Super Bowl, when all of 
civilization stopped doing what they were doing to watch this game. Played in beautiful San Diego. One man slept late. The game was played. If you remember the game, the Raiders played against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in fact, the Raiders lost 48-21. to And sometime late during that game, about 4 o'clock, that man who was sleeping awoke and recognized that something was very, very wrong. That man, whose name was Barrett Robbins, happened to be in the Oakland Raiders All-Pro Center. Happens to be he woke up in Tijuana, in Mexico, because Saturday night he went over the border, got drunk, got so drunk that he slept through the game and woke up in the middle of the Super Bowl in the wrong country, in Mexico, as opposed to USA, and recognized that he blew it. That he blew it bad. It is very difficult for me to share with you what he felt like (laughs) when he woke up. In his words, I mean, this was the biggest game of my life. This was everything I'd worked for as a child, as a young man, as a collegiate athlete, and going on into the pros. This is everything I had worked for, and that's what makes it the biggest. I, I mean, I mean, it's unbelievable to me. Those are his words. Gentlemen, not one of us will be an all-pro center, but every one of us will wake up one day. Every one of us will wake up when we leave this earth with a tremendously different appreciation and understanding of the value of life, of what a man can accomplish in but a moment, in what a man can accomplish by setting his direction and path for greatness. And for many people, it will be akin to waking up the day of the Super Bowl in Tijuana, Mexico, as opposed to San Diego, USA. Because many human beings are going to wake up and say to themselves, idiot, Idiot that I was. What was I thinking? At that point in one's life, it's too late. There's no going back. But with tremendous, tremendous rachamim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us a day called Yom Kippur that allows a person to wake up before the game's over. Yom Kippur is a day that a person can awake can come to his senses, like a drunk man can come to his senses and say, what am I doing? What am I living for? What am I accomplishing? Am I the man I can be? Am I the man I dreamt to be? And then, my friends, the most telling line, am I the man I want my children to see? When my kids were little, there was a rule in the house. Abba's got his glue gun. You know what that means? If anything broke, it didn't matter what it was. Don't worry, Abba's got a glue gun. Abba can glue it back together. Abba, I just smashed my tape recorder into 16,000 pieces. Could you please get your glue gun? But my kids really believe that Abba could fix anything with the glue gun. And it's a wonderful thing when you have a three or four-year-old and they look up to you, you being four times their size, as a great, great person. And they respect you. And they hold you in such esteem and such awe. And a funny thing happens between 4 and 14. Not only do you shrink 
in their eyes physically because they're now as tall as you. But all of a sudden they start seeing you for who you are. And I want to share with you on a personal note, it's an awakening feeling. Because you could hide from other people who you are, but your kids see you. And you have to ask yourself, are you the parent? Are you the father that your kids want you to see? And I want to share one personal thought. Yom Kippur now, my son, I have two sons, one's a little, one's 10 months old, the other is now Taka 14. For a number of Yom Kippers now, he's been old enough and mature enough to be there with me throughout the dominating. And I noticed that a few years ago, I, as I guess most people who have been around the planet for a little bit, will cry during parts of the davening. Baruch Hashem, I have a talus. I put the talus over my head so no one has to see. But I noticed my son, who's right there, sees me crying. And at first, I was very embarrassed. I don't want him to see, to see me that way. And then it hit me. It hit me and I understood And from that moment of understanding, I no longer hid my tears from my son. I wanted him to see them. And you know why? Because I wanted my son to know, and I want him to know now, that the man he sees is not the man I hope to be. What he sees now is hopefully a work in progress. This is not perfection. What he experiences during his life is a man who's working, hopefully growing, And the man has aspirations and goals of being a different man. Not the man forever who he sees. And it's a very important message to send to our children. The message is that we are supposed to be great people. What the Torah expects from us is godless. And the way a little child looks up to his father is the way that an older child should look up to his father because his father should be a great man. His father should be an inspiration to him. His father should be a man who the child at 25 years old holds in high esteem, in respect and awe. And if that's not who you are, Yom Kippur is a day to change that. Yom Yom Kippur is a day of tshuva, there's no question about that. But more than that, Yom Kippur is a day to understand, to take stock, to set goals, to set aspirations, so that at the end of my days, I can leave this planet and be the great person that was destined to be me. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, open our eyes and let us use this Yom Kippur properly. Let's all come to a sense of akara and understanding of what we can be. You've been listening to Yom Kippur, Finding Direction in Life, Part 3 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooz audio, video, and articles are available on the theshmooz.com or on the Shmooz app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461.